I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. I've been really looking forward to doing an episode on digitalization in the Kurdistan regional government uh, for a long time. It was actually one of the first episodes uh, planned for this podcast, uh, but Deputy Minister Hiwa Afandi is a very busy guy, uh, and we only just had time to be reacquainted after the new year. Um, IT uh, and digitalization, and I'll also actually include uh, AI in this conversation, it's often written off as sort of one of the driest areas of corporate and uh, governmental management. I say Dry, not boring, uh, because to understand uh, IT is to understand the future of how everything is going to be managed, essentially, be it public or private. And it's easy for Westerners to dismiss the absolute necessity of a digitally run government and economy. But when a young government like Kurdistan's develops, it becomes clear that different ministries can excel or fail because of a lack of coordination. And money can easily disappear into the wrong pockets. uh, And perhaps most importantly... The regional population's census and needs uh, can be overlooked or ignored. Think about all of the different areas of society that are digitalized uh, in a country like the United States. Sectors like education uh, and health and migration all exist in databases and archives with enormous space and potential, ideally uh, with nothing being unaccounted for. So this is what Hiwa Fundi is trying to do now. And the topic of IT is an extremely vast and complicated area. Uh, So that we got to speak together for 30 minutes really meant a lot. And Deputy Minister Effendi uh, picked up an interest in coding from a young age here. And then after growing up in Iran primarily, uh, moved to Germany and then Sweden, where he honed in his interest in IT as a vital point for governmental success here. Uh, In the process, he picked up uh, some German and some Swedish (laughs) and a myriad of different uh, engineering and uh, managerial skill sets earning him, according to him, the nickname of vacuum cleaner, uh, which uh, because of his ability uh, to take in all of these different areas uh, of study so quickly. Um, So with that little fun fact, here's our conversation. Deputy Minister Vacuum Cleaner, how are you? Thank you so much. (laughs) Uh, exactly, that was a good, a good nickname. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cut it out either. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, <laughs> we were just talking about your own background. Uh, so you, you grew up uh, mainly in Iran, and then you, you moved to Germany and Sweden from there. Yeah. And I'd actually like to talk about where you developed your own interest for IT. That was when you began looking into IT in Germany, but then also in, in Sweden. I wanted yeah. to uh, start with talking about the proficiency that those countries have with IT and where you learned about IT's importance uh, and, and how you decided to sort of follow that as your own career here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up um, in an atmosphere where I had friends who were very much into building elect- electronic circuits. Mm. So as a kid, we used to, I used to, to spend a lot of money in buying transistors, capacitors, um, electric circuits, and I was building things myself so when you I were was a nerd twelve from a young age. Yes, okay. very young. I built actually a, a this this tennis game hmm. when I was um, thirteen. So I had like pong. Yeah, the, 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 the tennis game. Yeah, that thing that the, the, the ball goes yeah, between. Yeah, pong. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I, devel- I, I created that when I was 13. Okay. I mean, I was following some, some uh, manuals on how to, but actually I, I built all the circuit myself, including drawing the, the, uh, the map on the circuit, making holes, putting transistors and all kind of uh, ICs on it and connecting to TV. So I, I was into it from the beginning before I was into IT because I'm talking about like 88, 87, mm. 86, these, these years. Um, then I had that in mind. When I, when I came back to, to Kurdistan, I spent a, f- a couple of two or three years here. I realized that I need to get out because I had to develop my skills, I had to, to study. When I went to Germany, um, it was the beginning of, of uh, computer science to become something important. So um, in Germany, they call it informatic. Mm. So I studied, I, well, the first time I applied for university, I, I applied to, um, I, I remember I applied to two universities, one uh, University of Stuttgart and one University of Karlsruhe. And when I applied for it, my first choice was informatic or computer science and the second choice was electrotechnic okay so and i got i got uh, accepted and then that's how i got into it but it was like it was not by accident it was all by choice yeah. i liked it right from the from from the early on okay so that was that came from an early age we talked so much about like these these particular scandinavian countries having a very good it base that's what you were talking about before yeah. we turned the microphones on but i'm curious about the kinds of obstacles countries with a good it base face the obstacles that they face for example with cases of uh all sorts of different things for uh, corruption and money laundering and then cases that countries that don't have a strong it base like uh, kurdistan and iraq yeah. uh, have what are the differences between those two I mean, it goes back before it becomes uh, a matter of IT. It's a matter of, of uh, how developed these countries are mm. in applying uh, technology to governance. Mm. It's basically rules and regulations, how, how advanced the democracy in those countries is. And then you, you, you see how, how digital systems, digital services can actually uh, help uh, better governance, help democracy. Uh, corruption and so on. So I would say the, the difference is like day and night when it comes to comparing the, the, the two worlds. Uh, on one side, you have a country with very strong institutions, very strong uh, laws and regulations preventing uh, corruption at every level, punishing it um, uh, very firmly. Mm-hmm. And then you have they have countries where where things work in for 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 a variety of reasons differently. Um, but when it comes to applying technology to governance, actually they are not very different. Okay. Um, things that that uh, prevent you in in uh, advanced countries and in developing countries alike are, for example, uh, resisting to change. Like employees do not want to change. Even in Sweden, when there is a new system um, introduced, my wife used to tell me she's she's working for the um, um, for the migration uh, authority. She said that whenever a new system was introduced to us, a new digital system, everyone was against it at the beginning, and it takes couple of couple of uh, like couple of years until they get used to it, and then they like it. And the same thing is uh, in, in, in developing countries. Whenever you bring a new system, there is, there is resistance toward the change. And until you develop that system, you also have other challenges. And I would say the most 
Um, the biggest challenge is leadership. If you, for every country, um, I'm not talking about countries with very strong institutions, such as Western countries, I'm talking about the developing countries that are coming up. If you look at UAE, Qatar, or Singapore, for example, you will see that uh, a single person's vision at the top has made all the difference. So because digital services and digital governance is about disrupting how the governance is, 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 uh, what currently is, mm -hmm. is about disrupting it, that disruption requires a lot of power and a lot of authority. Right. And that power and authority is not in the hand of a single minister or official. That should come from the leadership at top. A larger system. Exactly. That's so implemented from the, the Exactly. Yeah. So that's why the person at top mm -hmm. is extremely important. If that person has a digital vision, a vision to change things, then everything else becomes possible. Then you have other challenges, but that's the most important thing. And I would say, in this cabinet, what made all the difference is the prime minister, who is actually pro digital service and approach and he supports it mm -hmm. personally uh, fiercely and that's 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 why we can actually push ministers and others to to um, respect the regulations to um, play along the digital strategies that we have developed together. Well, in countries and parliaments that have had a, a more developed IT uh, sector for a longer period of time uh, sort of take for granted, I think, the uh, influence that IT has over their current policy implementation now. But um, I think nowadays in 2023, it's, 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 it's important to see IT as, as a form of human rights. Uh, and so I, I think if you could give me some examples as to how specifically IT Besides, I mean, we're looking right here at a, a screen back here, so I can, we're in audio format. This isn't a good idea, but <laughs> there's a that's giant, the, there's a giant screen behind me. That's the dashboard of the population me. information. <laughs> yeah, there's public, population information. Uh, uh, and so, like, for example, a census is a good way uh, yes. uh, to improve a society's exactly. uh, existence. But uh, what are some other ways that IT can improve the day-to-day -day life of the, uh, the average, like, citizen in KRA? Well, um, the, the um, digital transformation when we say, what, are, what is the definition of a digital transformation? The, the most important factor in a digital transformation is its citizen centricity, mm -hmm. meaning that you no longer develop systems to which people are, are forced to use in a certain way. You develop the system in a way that the citizen is at the center of its design. So you design all your systems with the citizen at the center of it. For example, you have to make sure that the citizen can access from anywhere, at any time, from an, any location, any device. Mm -hmm. That's the core, so you're with the mobility. Second, you have to make sure that you are not creating um, a, a digital gap here. It means using omni-channel of delivery, you make sure that young generation, older gen generation, people with reduced capabilities, mobilities, can use the system without a hassle. Those who are digitally illiterate should also be able to use the system, which means you are not creating a system by uh, and cutting out uh, a, a segment of the society mm -hmm. because they, they are not able to, to interact with the system. Also, at the same time, you have to tackle the, the digital divide, meaning that we have to make sure that if you are going digital, then 
people need to have internet access. People need to be able to access the system in a way that they can afford it. So all of these, these aspects are the, the values that, um, that we have uh, incorporated into the digital transformation strategy that we announced uh, a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. um, and then you come, to, you come to core services. By having, for example, one of the core services is the citizen engagement uh, systems. You to, to support democracy, you need to be able to create systems that support the vertical accountability in a society, meaning that people who vote should be able to hold people who they have voted for accountable, and you need to create digital systems so that they can actually complain or give feedback about those people. Mm -hmm. A system that will be going live very soon is called Citizen Complaint System, which is a system that will be deployed um, like a Kurdistan-wide. Every citizen can digitally and easily access the system, complain about any service or any individual in the government, and there is a central mechanism in the government uh, who will be looking into these this, this complaints. You can get a, 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 a tracking code so that you can uh, trace back your, your complaint mm -hmm. and see where it is, and it is considered a legal case. So you upload enough documents, people are responsible for following up on that. Uh, this is just one system mm -hmm. as an example of how, how digital can support democracy and transparency and make the life of people easier. And that's actually, that's a fantastic system. But uh, one of the things is because uh, uh, KRI has existed without this kind of system for so long, yeah. there's been a lot of merging of private sector uh, uh, CEOs and public officials when it comes to, for example, larger industries like oil and real estate. And so what you end up with is a lot of blurred lines when it comes to uh, cases of corruption, for example. True. And so how uh, do you disrupt those systems? Because those are very profitable sectors. How do you disrupt those systems without undercutting sort of the economic viability of them um, I'm not sure I, I, I understood the, the, the question well for example KRI primarily functions on a cash economy yes yeah so <laughs> without a digital like money system to be yes. able to uh, yeah. uh, follow accountability yeah. for example for large sectors yeah. I mean uh, that involve uh, for example land exchange and ownership yes. yes how do you track that and which is a private system not public yeah. and also be able to hold public officials accountable uh, yeah. who may have their hands in uh, that system as well so one uh, uh, that is a very good question because uh, a lack of a lack of uh, a proper banking mm. has been a, a main source of corruption in Kurdistan region uh, at prime minister office level they are they have uh, tasked uh, the consulting company Oliver Wyman as we speak to uh, look into the banking sector. Uh, they have handpicked a couple of banking actors who are going to provide government with the digital payment systems. Basically, what I want to say is the more you eliminate the cash transactions between um, uh, people and government, the more transparent it becomes. Because there is no... The, um, it doesn't allow anything other than what is specified digitally to be to be to be exchanged. That's one thing. So having by having a proper banking system in place, you're automatically going to eliminate a lot. You bring a lot of efficiency and transparency to, to the uh, to, to the arena. And then um, I believe 
It's, this, there, are, there are situations where digital alone will not be helpful. So we need to look into the rules and regulations and law enforcement. Absolutely. So, the entire system needs to be able to change around that. We are working on yeah. tax system as we, as we speak. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are planning by, hopefully by July, to have uh, the first version of the tax system in Kurdistan in place. There are multiple, of, multiple systems that are planned to be in place. You are going to see them when you look at our digital transformation strategy. You will, you, we are going to upload a, a, the roadmap. So you have the strategy now with all the annexes, but you will also see what we are going to do in the next 12 months, which will be uploaded very soon. We are in the process of prioritizing uh, systems, but tax system is one of them. Land registry is also one of them. So the, uh, we, uh, we recognize the need for these systems to be to be digitalized and for us to have a a, a better grip mm -hmm. over the system. In addition, there also have been some old digital systems carried out by private sector that are not very transparent. We are not very clear about them. We are going to re re revisit the services as well. You're going to change the regulations on those uh, private sector laws. We can look. These are the the regulations are there. I think for those companies, the problem is more contracting, mm -hmm. and how how these companies are empowered, for example, to charge people without any checks and balances. We need to look into that. I mean, because many people within those sectors would say that these sectors are so profitable because things are transactions are able to happen so opaquely and uh, yeah. uh, so quickly uh, yeah. through cash. So, Absolutely. what would you say to those people? I mean, uh, I believe not only the, the, the type, the, um, how to say, it's not digitalizing the transaction alone will not help, but mm. we need to look into those contracts. For example, there are fees charged that are not justifiable, Okay. simply not justifiable. So um, in the past, under the excuse that government is not going to pay anything for the, this digital system to be developed, the government has allowed some private sector companies to develop systems for the government, but these systems have become kind of a cash cow. Uh, and uh, citizens are not um, benefiting from these services to be, uh, that are digital now. Mm -hmm. Digitalization means the citizens should, the, I mean, they, sh they, they should see benefit. Things should cost less and they, sh they must happen faster. So we, we recognize that, but you know, in a country where you have 500 services and you just started to digitalize them, prioritization is key. No government in the world can start working on all 500 services, 600 services at once. Of course not. And that's why um, consistency and persistency is, is key. For a government to be digitally advanced, it is important that multiple government cabinets work consistently based on a strategy for, for at least seven to eight years. And then you, you'll see the benefits of, of, uh, of digitalization. And digitalization should happen based on, um, I, don't, I don't want to um, uh, emphasize on the fact that governments need to do services themselves. Private sector is, is, should have the, the lion's share of creating digital services. But what I want to say is that this should happen based on a strategy, regulations, and very strong monitoring and control to make sure that the private sector is not exploiting the, the, the public sector and citizens.
Another area that I wanted to get into was something actually you referenced, I think it was an article about five years ago. We'll yeah. say five and a half now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one thing that you talked about in particular was the importance of digitalizing medical records. Yes. Uh, could we get into the importance of be people being able to access and have uh, uh, records of their own and relatives' uh, medical information? That is a very delicate and important matter, and it's a very good question. When we, for, um, for digital systems to work, uh, most of the time, these services need to talk to each other. Most of the services are complex services, meaning that we need to aggregate data from different systems, put them together so for them to work. And this means that the, uh, the population should be digitally registered mm. so that you can assign a digital key or digital ID to each and every person residing in Kurdistan region so that the different systems developed by different actors but using the same key can exchange information. Now once, once we have this data exchange layer and once we have assigned a digital ID to each and every citizen, then the question of the data access and data consent becomes the most important topic which you just mentioned. There need to be a system in place and that's what we're working on. Any system, let's say if you are residing, if you're residing within Kurdistan region and you have a digital ID, for your medical records to be accessed by any external actor or any, any other person uh, without pre-authorization, there need to be the consent of the user. It should be uh, mandatory. So what we do right now is creating the infrastructure for the user to be in full control of its data. It should not be the case that my medical records are accessed by someone else without my information and authorization. But we are, right now, we are at a stage that we need first to assign the digital IDs to people, create the systems, and then when the time comes for the data exchange, those, those mechanisms and uh, regulations should be in place to control such a thing. What about, for example, with different uh, population uh, fluctuations in different sectors. And I'll give you an example of education. So yeah. last year, the inclusion uh, program for uh, uh, displaced children and Syrian children, yeah. Syrian refugees uh, being Im implemented to access yeah. Kurdish uh, public education yes. here. Uh, how would those kids be, uh, uh, would those kids be assigned a digital ID? Would they, uh, would they be uh, able to access their own system? Uh, and Absolutely. For example, yeah. yeah. And that's why we call it the residing population in Kurdistan region. Mm -hmm. We do not say only Kurdistanis or only okay. Kurds. Whoever, whoever lives within the borders of Kurdistan region, for whatever reason, they will get a digital ID assigned. Mm -hmm. So digital ID will not, will not tell you that you are a Kurd or Kurdistani. It just says that you are living within these borders and you're entitled to some services depending on, the, on, on who you are. Uh, by the, when we designed the population information system, we, we had that exactly in mind. We know that Kurdistan is a place where a lot of, it's a, it's a very um, turbulent region. We have a lot of uh, people who have fled the, the places they have come to us. That might happen again in the future. And we are making sure that our systems are ready to handle such, uh, such disrupting situations. Mm. So the, the answer is, right now we are not looking in the Ministry of uh, Education and the programs. 
but I can assure you that uh, at core what, uh, what uh, His Excellency the Prime Minister has instructed us to do is to make sure that the, that the systems are ready to serve anyone who chooses to live within our borders mm. or they're forced to live within our borders. So let's fast forward 10 years from now, let's say uh, the implementation process for this digital system has, has yeah. gone relatively smoothly yeah. and now there's a larger conversation that needs to be had about not uh, when will Kurdistan have a, a, a good IT base uh, for its public sector, but what it should do with certain uh, um, areas of that IT. And I'll give you the example of right to be forgotten, which is kind of an ongoing conversation with yeah. countries with good IT uh, uh, have right now. And right yeah. to be forgotten uh, is uh, the idea that you as a citizen have a right to uh, delete uh, your name, for example, from Google, uh, that people will not be able to access uh, your records on a privately owned system, yeah. depending on which country you live in. Yeah. And the United States has a different take on right yeah. to be forgotten because we put a higher emphasis on freedom of expression. Yes. There's a higher emphasis on privacy in, in countries like Sweden, for yeah. example. And then you have more authoritarian countries like China, where all of the uh, information uh, is accessible and being able to yes. use by the government. So yes. My question to you, and this is more a question for you personally, yeah. is where do you stand on, like, for example, the ability uh, for a government to be able to use someone's personal information and hold on to that uh, information, uh, even if they want that information expelled from the IT system? I think the information should be segmented into the essential data for the purpose of identification mm -hmm. and uh, from the population registry. For example, in Sweden, they will always know where, who your father was, who your grandfather was, mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of where, where you were born. So these are the, the essential information that belong to uh, the existence of a person. And then there are intera a, a private citizen interacting with different systems and data that's not essential mm -hmm. for, for the core government services. And I completely support the idea of the citizens to have the, the power to remove the data from any non-essential systems that, that, can, that can work without those data being kept with them. But I can tell you one, uh, something else. In 10 years, your problem is, now, is no longer uh, systems built by, by, by humans. I think in 10 years, you will have a bigger problem with the artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and how advanced these systems are and how much the data of, of, of world population in general has fed into this, to the data sets of this uh, system. Do you mean the context of spying, for example? No, artificial intelligence in general is in 10 years is going to replace a lot of humans. Mm. So they will, know, they will know everything about you and it will become a real challenge for any government. It, it's no longer the governments who can delete the data, it will be the private companies who will be more powerful than the governments and I'm not sure they're going to comply. So do you think that regulation needs to start taking place now in order to prevent that from happening here? I personally think um, speaking about the right to be forgotten for Kurdistan, we should have had it 10 years ago. <laughs> it's a, it's a slow-moving conversation, yeah, yeah. What we need to talk about now is putting a regulation in place. You might, you might wonder, maybe it's not, you say it's too early for Kurdistan, but it is globally valid. I think we're going to have a big problem with the privacy and the artificial intelligence in 10 years. All right, I, well, think we need, we need, I think we need regulations for artificial intelligence um, before we talk about, about, about the, the privacy because they will be 
very it will be very scary and intimidating if you do not control that all right well if we could get into like for example medical records or education what would be some areas that artificial intelligence might be uh, uh, dangerous uh, in accessing so depending on what uh, artificial intelligence powered systems we use mm. those systems might uh, use the data in a way that it becomes impossible for us even to delete it or to 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 uh, i mean the this engines work based on the training data and how much data you feed them to um, to be trained. How the personal information, how much memory they have of a person, because it will be so personalized that you will have an artificial intelligence doctor who knows everything about you in order to help you. Mm -hmm. To remove you from its uh, cognitive memory, it will be, it, re it will require um, first of all, you remove that, probably you're, you're rendering them useless. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure that the private companies who, who empower them are going to abide by. So I would say right now our emphasis must be on making sure we have enough rules and regulations and policies for artificial intelligence-based systems owned by these companies in 10 years so that you have the right to be forgotten by, uh, by those uh, AI agents. Well, Deputy Minister, thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. I appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you guys. Cheers. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks again to Deputy Minister Effendi for uh, taking the time and letting us drop by his office. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network. You can check out our podcast on kurdistanin.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at info at kurdistanin.net. Thanks so much. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. <laughs> <laughs>